Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malpathanchel. She's been Connecticut's third district congresswoman since 1991, and she now holds one of the most powerful positions, chair of the House Appropriations Committee. Today, Where We Live, Representative Rosa DeLauro joins us to answer our questions and yours. A longtime champion for children and families, one of her proposals to expand the child tax credit has been endorsed by President Biden. What impact could that have to help children in poverty? We'll find out and we'll take your calls too. You can join us at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Congresswoman Rosa DeLara joins us on Zoom. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you. How are you? How are your family safe? Everyone safe? Uh, yes, we no complaints. How about you, Rosa? Yes, yeah, no, it's wonderful, and it's great to be able to see my grandkids again and to hug them. So <laughs> it's it's good. I definitely want to get into the president's budget plan with you. But before we do that, I wanted to talk to you about a January 6th commission. We all know last week Senate Republicans used the filibuster to reject plans for a bipartisan committee to investigate what happened January 6th. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's it's really, it defies imagination. This was an insurrection. Think about this. Lucy, the what was happening was that the the constitutional uh, role uh, that the Congress had to play uh, uh, in, uh, in in certifying the election by counting the electoral ballots. Normally, this is a pro forma uh, session, um, and the, the ballots are counted, and you, you you know there's very little attention paid toward it. Uh, however. There was the understanding uh, that there were people that were going to contest the uh, uh, the uh, the election. So therefore, there was a um, uh, there was a, a deliberation on the floor of the House uh, with the several states. <clears throat> Connecticut wasn't one of the states that was challenging uh, the outcome of the election, but several states were: Arizona, Pennsylvania, uh, and so there was a debate. And uh, I went to that debate and I was sitting in the gallery because it was only those folks who were seated on the um, on the uh, floor of the House with the people in contested states. Long and the short of it, uh, uh, this the, the actions that took place that day and I was evacuated uh, from the, uh, uh, the, the House chamber, uh, along with a number of others, uh, even told to hit the ground because there was. Uh, uh, gunshots, but uh, the Capitol was breached. It was an attempt to overturn the constitutional authority uh, uh, of counting ballots, certify the election of uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So why would we not want to pursue why this happened? 
what's happened. We had a 9-11 commission, a bipartisan commission. That is what this is. It is, I, I, and I think if you've listened to the commentary of some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle most recently, is that they are uh, denying what happened on January 6th. Uh, I want, one member uh, said that it was like, these were ordinary tourists, you know, just being at the Capitol, ordinary tourists. They smashed the doors of the, the house chamber. They, a, a, a police officer was, was killed. 140 officers were, uh, were injured. The uh, windows bashed in. There was a gallows that said, hang Mike Pence. Let's find Nancy Pelosi. That defies imagination. So do you support there the- is do this you view that um, it's a denial of the truth of January 6th and the insurrection. And I, I think quite frankly, it brings shame on the United mm -hmm. States Senate. So how does the Congress get to the truth of what happened that day? Because uh, as you mentioned, there are mm -hmm. members and, and the American public who, some who believe that it wasn't a big deal. So how, do you support the idea of an investigation by a select committee set up by Democrats? Well, I, I, what's, what, what is now going to be in the process, and let's, you know, again, this commission, and there were a lot of, uh, uh, it was de deliberated on a bipartisan basis. And so there was give and take on both sides. Five Democrats, five Republicans. Um, uh, they made accommodations with regard to subpoena power uh, and uh, a whole variety of other things. And again, a bipartisan negotiation. Uh, in the House, uh, there were 35 Republicans who voted with the Democrats uh, for uh, uh, such a, such a, a, a commission. Uh, and the Senate obviously uh, Mitch McConnell is uh, in denial of what happened on January 6th. Um, but there are several options available. Um, uh, some have mentioned a presidential commission. Um, there is, as you spoke about, the opportunity for a select committee. But that now is going to be regarded as partisan, mm -hmm. uh, uh, when in fact we had a bipartisan vehicle to be able to uh, get to the bottom of what happened. On, uh, on on January 6th. Uh, and you know, there, it, you could just uh, continue to go with those committees that are conducting their own investigations. So that is now all under discussion as to how we move forward. Uh, meanwhile, you support uh, extra funding to boost not only capital security, uh, but also mm -hmm. thinking about all the people that were traumatized that day. Absolutely, and it, it falls in the purview of the Appropriations uh, Committee. And as you mentioned, I chair the Appropriations Committee. So this is what they refer to as a supplemental, uh, it's a supplemental uh, appropriations bill to deal with the issues of, of uh, January 6th. And it is, uh, it's, it's, it's $1.9 billion uh, and there's funding uh, for, the, uh, for the Capitol Police uh, to reimburse uh, overtime. Uh, uh, bonuses for retention, uh, hazard pay, uh, wellness, uh, counseling and trauma counseling. Uh, there's money for the repayment of the National Guard. And there were a number of Connecticut National Guardsmen uh, on, the, on the premises uh, through, uh, uh, through the end of May. Uh, there is um, a funding uh, for the custodial staff who really 
had to pick up the mess that was uh, uh, in, in, the, in the wake of, of, of what happened. Uh, and all of the, all of the uh, uh, resources that we have provided are the result of uh, the recommendations of, again, a, what's, what was called a capital security review investigating January 6th. The head of that was a General, uh, Lieutenant General Russell Honore, a very decorated general. He did the aftermath of Katrina and, and made the number of, of recommendations uh, which we have followed uh, with regard to the Capitol Police. It was also about the security of the complex itself, the hardening of the windows, the doors, um, the equipment, what we found out was the equipment that the Capitol Police had, had was um, expired uh, and they didn't have enough of what was needed uh, in order to be able to uh, push back on this insurrection. Uh, we also uh, are dealing with the security of the employees, the people who visit the Capitol. Uh, there's a prohibition against these high fences, um, but there would be retractable fences. Uh, and again, taking the advice of this uh, uh, Capitol Security Review, uh, what I didn't do or what we didn't do is to uh, decide on our own what should be um, what should be in it, but took the advice of military experts uh, and the general's uh, report of the of the of the commission, uh, and also it includes uh, resources uh, for the security of members. Some members were threatened, um, and families were threatened. So it's the security of uh, members visitors, um, and employees of the Capitol. You're listening to Where We Live. Third District Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro is our guest today. Do you have a question for her? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's talk about the, the federal budget. Uh, President Biden released his proposal on Friday. You tweeted, quote, COVID-19 has exposed the many challenges facing our nation, crumbling physical infrastructure, fraying human infrastructure, unaffordable child care, education and health care, and an economy that caters to the wealthy at the expense of working families and the vulnerable. So do you see Biden's $6 trillion budget as a way to help people get back on their feet? Well, you know, the way you characterized and, and, and it's what, what I said, it is absolutely the fact. So I believe that this is such an extraordinary opportunity for us to bring about real change uh, for America's hardworking uh, families, uh, for middle class families, uh, for those who are vulnerable. Um, and, and the pandemic has exposed these, 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 these challenges. And when you take a look at what happened uh, with the collapse of our childcare system, the collapse of the unemployment insurance system, the collapse of our uh, public infrastructure um, uh, 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 system. Uh, so um, th this, this budget rec recognizes uh, 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 what happened and, and, and as well, the, uh, uh, the health disparities, the racial in uh, in in inequities uh, in both health and in uh, 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 and in the economy, uh, so that in fact, what this is is a serious uh, investment, a way in which we can uh, really build the architecture uh, for the future uh, for both healthcare and for the economy of this country. And I think the the president's uh, priorities 
are just absolutely well placed. Um, and, and not only with his budget, but when we take a look at what happened with the American Rescue Plan, where the benefits really accrue not to the richest one tenth of one percent, uh, as it was uh, in 2017 with the tax cut, uh, but are benefiting middle class families, the working uh, working families, uh, the, those who are most vulnerable. Uh, so uh, it, it, it hits the mark uh, in so, so many ways. Um, uh, but that is, as I said, true of uh, not only his budget, but the American Rescue Plan, uh, which I had a hand in uh, 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 in crafting, uh, the uh, uh, the jobs plan that he has put forward, uh, and the American Families Plan. Uh, all of these are geared toward, um, uh, again, uh, working working families, uh, uh, and and not the. Uh, the corporations or the uh, the uh, you know the richest one tenth of one percent in the uh, in in the country. So it is a major investment after years of disinvestment uh, in our country. You mentioned the high earners and corporations. Uh, President Biden's budget would be uh, includes three point six trillion dollar in tax hikes that would impact right. them. Uh, Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says this budget represents too much spending paid for with too much borrowing. What's your response to that? <laughs> Well, I asked Kevin McCarthy to go back and take a look at 2017 uh, when I, and I'm, I'm sure he was a, a leader in the charge on the on the tax cut, which was, uh, you know, just about two trillion dollars. And they didn't care a whit about how it was going to pay for be paid for. They also spoke about how those who were getting the biggest benefits were going to be the job creators. Well, in fact, so many of the corporations sent their jobs overseas. And I don't know what the number is now, but a number of them don't pay any taxes at all. Um, uh, uh, and so we lost jobs. Uh, we've got corporations that pay that don't pay their fair share of, uh, of, of, of taxes. Uh, uh, and um, uh, so they uh, really, they they made out like bandits, uh, and and uh, Kevin McCarthy didn't care a whit about what the uh, uh, what the borrowing would have to be. Uh, that is also true of the uh, you know the Iraq War, etc., which they didn't bother to believe that had to be paid for. So uh, that that really is um, there's no credibility. There is no credibility there. You can disagree, you know, with uh, uh, you know with the the direction of President Biden, but please don't use that lame excuse that you paid no attention to uh, for low these many years. Uh, we, I want to keep talking with Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro here on Where We Live. She is uh, chair of the House Appropriations Committee. We'll have a, a big hand in the, the way the federal budget uh, comes together. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I believe uh, we're taking a call now. Tulio from Rocky Hill. What's your question, Tulio? Hi, Congresswoman Laurel. Uh, pleasure speaking with you. I, I had a question regarding the, the federal student loan um, debt relief. Um, I, I know that, that President Biden did not add uh, um, that to his, to his current budget. Uh, my wife has a substantial amount of um, federal student loans. I was wondering if there were any plans to move forward with the relief of that or, or, or part of it or you know, the mm -hmm. 10000 Yeah, so... <laughs> Yes, no, no, that's a very good question. And hello to you, Tulio. You know, that's a big issue uh, for so many people. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, 
take a look at what the, what the if the budget addresses this at all. But uh, clearly, in the rescue package, the the cares packages, etc., the issue of student uh, debt uh, was was addressed. Uh, and because there's a great recognition that this is a very, very big issue. And uh, if you will note that in the president's American Families Plan, uh, uh, the, the cost of two years of community college would now be uh, free uh, as well. That's the direction he wants to go in. So yes, um, and what we need to do is to get you to the information that really uh, uh, you, you know, tells you, um, in fact, uh, what kind of relief uh, that you and uh, and your wife, you know, can get, but it is addressed, um, and it may be that through. I don't know how I can get the information to you, but you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my office number, Julia. It's two zero three five six two three seven one eight. Okay, and uh, we will uh, uh, provide you with the information about student loan debt. I'm glad that Tulia brought up uh, student loan debt. Miriam also tweeted saying, is there a way to raise the income limit to qualify for deduction of student loan interest on federal tax returns, uh, Congresswoman? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I don't know the answer to that, uh, that I would, but I'm happy to take that up with the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal, who is our colleague uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, but uh, I, I don't really know the answer to that. I'm sorry, but uh, I will, you, you know, be happy to uh, uh, to inquire about it. We'll also send uh, Tulio's number uh, to your staff, uh, Congresswoman. Oh, we're able to write that's that great. down. You know, <laughs> we were talking. Great. We were talking about the the federal budget plan and a redistribution of wealth and income to help middle class and and other uh, low income families. Something you've championed for almost two decades is an expansion of the child tax credit. Uh, the president mm -hmm. and Congress approving an expansion of this for one year as part of the American Rescue Plan. Uh, now I believe the president is endorsing continuing it for another four years. So who will this expansion benefit the most? Talk through with us. This is something that you have been on uh, since the very beginning. Yes, um, listen, I'm, I'm very, very excited about the, uh, the child tax credit uh, because I believe it is transformative. I, I liken um, uh, this, this effort to what we were able to accomplish uh, with Franklin Roosevelt in, in the New Deal um, because, I, it, it, you know, the coronavirus pandemic did not just shine a light on child poverty um, and a shrinking middle class, uh, it exacerbated it and it, it amplifies the need, the urgency uh, for expanding and improving a child tax credit. Um, child poverty it, it has existed for a very long time, um, but we, 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 we now know that it's incredibly important to address. And, and you're right, I began my journey on the child tax credit in 2003, when I introduced a, an amendment uh, to expand it uh, in the budget committee. And at that time, uh, we lost on a party line vote, uh, but that, you know, not to be deterred, have been working on it for the last 18 years. So you can imagine uh, how excited I am uh, uh, that we now have a child tax credit. Uh, it's desperately needed. It's groundbreaking, and I'll tell you precisely uh, how it is a lifeline to the middle class and will lift uh, over 50% of children um, out of, 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 of poverty. And let me make this uh, um, contrast, if I will, for the moment. I had a chance to be in the Oval Office when we were talking about the American Rescue Plan 
uh, with, with my colleagues who were chairs of various committees. And the president and the vice president were sitting under the portrait of Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, when I looked at that, and I just kind of clicked in my head that, you know, it was Franklin Roosevelt through Social Security that lifted 90% of older Americans, seniors out of poverty in this country. And in fact, uh, with the stroke of a pen, uh, that is what happens with a child tax credit. Uh, over 55% of children lifted out of, 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 of poverty. This is not throwing money at a problem. Uh, this is not a Band-Aid, but as I mentioned earlier on, this is about the architecture uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for the future. And because we have the presidential leadership, willing partners in the White House, we have strength in the Congress, and the urgency that there was the recognition of, uh, and, and the demand for, for, uh, for, for action. I will tell you what it, precisely what it does. It increases the maximum credit from $2,000 to $3,000 for children who are six to 17 uh, uh, years old. It's a $600 uh, 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 for each child uh, under the age, of, and it is, uh, 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 it's a, it would be $250 a month per child for kids who are six to 17 and $300 a, a month per child uh, for six and under. Um, and uh, the, the payments are going to start beginning in July. Uh, uh, so uh, and, uh, people who have filed taxes uh, will get their check. And now the IRS, we're working with the IRS to open a portal uh, for those people who do not file. And I'm going to give you the statistics. I know I'm taking a long time, but look, this, this is the consequence. Asian American, Pacific Islander children lifted out of poverty, 51.4%. Black children, 59%. Hispanic children, 56%. White children, 51%. Native American children, almost 67%. Uh, and multiracial kids and all other groups by 49%. A point further, Connecticut, 109,500 kids. 76% will benefit from the monthly child tax credit checks. Additionally, the expanded and improved uh, a credit lifts 8,400 children in my district out of poverty, 3,700 children out of deep poverty. Um, and uh, this is, what we do, we do is to give the larger benefit for the youngest kids, that means that 3,100 kids under the age of six are raised out of poverty. Um, and the average benefit for almost 3,400 households in Connecticut's third district is $2,600 annually. And families with children in poverty will receive, will receive $4,300 on average. It is a transformational piece of legislation significantly. Congresswoman, I want to take Providing economic security uh, for people. And, and Paul from Willimantic actually has a question related to child tax credits. Go, go okay. ahead, Paul. Uh, hi, uh, Congresswoman. Um, my, I'm reading from the Kiplinger tax letter of April 2nd, 2021. 
It says mm-hmm. the IRS estimates that in 2019, it improperly paid $7.2 billion in refundable child credits. Has this been addressed? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, well, let, let, let me make a couple of comments about the IRS. The IRS also, uh, and if you, uh, I don't know what newsletter you're reading from, I, th- this one may not say this, um, but by the testimony of the IRS director, uh, he spoke of the, uh, we leave a trillion dollars every year uh, uh, on the table, if you will, because the IRS doesn't have the funding to be able to enforce the tax code. Uh, and that is on uh, the, uh, 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 the, the, the folks at the highest end of the income scale. Think about it. One trillion dollars left on the table because they uh, are, are, don't have uh, the wherewithal to be able to enforce our tax laws. When, when you talk about uh, errors uh, that are made, when they talk about, uh, and, and, and I don't know because I, I, I don't know what newsletter you're, you're reading from, sometimes those uh, 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 errors are people being, it's underpaid and overpaid. Uh, but they are doing something about it. Where they're not doing anything about it is at the upper end of the scale where you have folks. And as I said, there may be 30, 40 corporations today who pay zero tax to the United States, and they're doing pretty well. So uh, the IRS is looking at that. And what I'm going to planning to do is let's, I will be happy to provide the IRS with enforcement money. So whomever is dodging our tax code uh, ought to uh, uh, be taken to task, whether you are at a, a lower income level or whether you are at the highest levels. Let's take a break. Again, uh, our guest today is Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. She is chair of the House Appropriations Committee. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about earmarks. They're back, and you can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our guest today, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. She's served the 3rd District for 30 years. She's now the chair of the House Appropriations Committee. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. So let's talk about earmarks, Congresswoman. Again, uh, this is a system that allows members uh, to request funding for projects in their districts outside of the full budget process. As your role as chair, you've got an important role in overseeing earmarks. Why uh, should they return? Uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, and it is, in fact, is the Appropriations uh, a Committee. Uh, uh, and what I've uh, moved to do was to implement the option uh, for community project funding. Uh, this allows members to help uh, their constituents more effectively uh, in their own districts. It's a bipartisan reform, I might add. It's a fully open to public oversight, uh, and it allows Congress to make a difference, especially when so many people are hurting. Um, you look, m- members of Congress know their districts better than anyone else, not the executive branch, and, uh, and uh, should have a say in how taxpayers' dollars are spent. But what's really um, uh, what we have done in this process, which I'm very excited about, uh, we have we were informed by the Bipartisan Select Committee on Modernization of Congress, um, and uh, 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 that made recommendations of returning with community projects funding and what kinds of guardrails uh, we should um, uh, 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 put in place uh, in order uh, to, to, to avoid difficulty. And um, so this is what the direction we went in. We've limited the number of projects uh, members can request up to 10 projects and um, uh, with the knowledge that all 10 will not be, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, addressed. Uh, members have to assert uh, in, a, in a statement, in a financial statement, that they have no financial um, ties to the project and nor do their immediate family have ties uh, to the uh, uh, to, to the project. Um, uh, for-profit uh, entities are not eligible, uh, so it's nonprofits and um, uh, state, local government entities are, are uh, eligible, um, and uh, it is uh, transparent. All of the projects, uh, actually, they're all now on a, uh, on every member who has requested projects. It's on their website, and it's also in the Appropriations Committee database, uh, so that people can look at it and. Uh, uh, the name of the member, the project, what it does, and the dollar amount. Um, in addition to which, I think one of the most important um, reforms, which I'm very, very pleased about, is that these uh, uh, requests uh, for a project have to emanate with the community. Um, that it's not about, uh, you know, sitting in your living room and deciding you would like to do this or you would like to do that. No, there has to be demonstrable evidence that this is a community uh, need um, and uh, 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 so that uh, it has the endorsement. And in some instances, when I've been talking to my colleagues uh, who have maybe a, a, a Democratic member who may have a Republican city council or a mayor, etc., working with them uh, to um, uh, 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 make a request uh, for a particular project. The same is true the other way around. Um, 
meeting and pulling together a community groups uh, to get their input. And that's been that's happening all over the country. Mm. Look, members want to help their communities. Um, and as I said, particularly because of the pandemic and the inequalities that have been um, uh, exposed. So the, the community project funding allows the Congress to fund the projects that can make a difference in the lives of their constituents. Mm. Um, so, and so earmarks so, are called community uh, funding community projects. project funding, project and that's funding okay. for a reason because it's got to generate from the community. It's got to come forward uh, from well, the, the, the the community. Um, but but you know the criticism. We have about three thousand yeah. requests. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, but Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman. But when we think about the the criticism of the process, that you know, earmarks are still going to be used as a way to get bipartisan support for some major bills. Uh, if a, a lawmaker thinks that they can get a certain project uh, funded in their district, is that improper influence? No, I, no, because when you take a look at, uh, it, it's not a question of improper I- I- influence. It's a question of what is the need, and the community has attested to the need. Uh, I'm, I'm, as I said, we've had more than 3,000 requests. Let me just, it's education initiatives, learning and developing skilled workforce, health programs, care for the disadvantaged, underserved populations, public safety programs, facilities to foster safer communities, infrastructure projects that create jobs and spur economic growth. That is the nature of the projects. Uh, and as I said, you could take a look at the, the you know my, my projects and we had a you, you know we work closely with community groups this is not a, 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 a th- th- this is in response to a need uh that that the community is raising uh i, I you know and it, it it's not a quid pro quo because absolutely not people are not going to get everything they've asked for uh so um, uh, you, you know, and th- that's what we try to accomplish here is making these community based. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to, you, you know, just deny that, you, you know, people have something at stake in something that they're they're You know, they're interested in it. But for the most part, you, you know, if, if people don't like the bill, if there's something that violates their own principles or ethics, they're going to vote against mm-hmm. the bill. You know, so you just but. This is directly in response to community need. I wanted to fit a quick call in. Mark's calling in. Mark, go ahead with your question. Oh, hi, Representative Delora. Um, hi. On President, hi. On President Biden's infrastructure plan, is there yeah. a talk about raising the Social Security amount? Um. That is, I mean, I, it, not it, it, that wouldn't be in the infrastructure jobs. Uh, a, a bill, uh, but you do know that there is a, um, a, a a piece of legislation that our colleague John Larson uh, has introduced, um, uh, which in fact does raise the Social Security uh, amount. Uh, it's a very, very uh, popular piece of legislation, and I know uh, Congressman Larson is anxious to see if he can get that uh, a bill uh, it goes through the Ways and Means Committee, of which he is a member, uh, and there's support there to bring that bill to the floor, which would address uh, the in, uh, an increase in Social Security. 
I wanted to uh, fit in a, a Facebook comment we got from Jim. I had mentioned that you've been serving the New Haven uh, area, the third district for 30 years. Uh, Jim wants to know, you know how you feel about term limits and do you feel like you have any responsibility towards the current crisis facing the middle class, Congresswoman? Well, I think I've I, 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 I think I, I feel every day, it doesn't make any difference how long I have served. I have felt the crisis from the middle class uh, since the moment I arrived in Congress. I am uh, the daughter of a blue collar family, an immigrant family who could only dare dream their daughter would serve in the House of Representatives. Uh, my family financially struggled uh, for, for, for many years, including um, uh, our finding one Friday evening going home, we found all of our furniture on, out on the street uh, because we had been evicted. And uh, we had to move in with my grandmother for a while until we got back on uh, back on our feet uh, again. My mother worked in the old uh, sweatshops in the city of New Haven as a garment worker, making pennies on dresses. Uh, my father was an insurance salesman. So I come from a blue collar uh, working family uh, if you will, you can talk about middle-class family. So the moment I entered the Congress, it has been my focus. Uh, I would just say it took me 18 years to get the um, uh, uh, child tax credit um, passed. If I had been term limited, I never would have been able to pass that bill. And that will make, it is as I've described, and you can check it, it is a lifeline to middle-class families. Uh, I have worked to pass um, equal pay for equal work for women. Men and women in the same uh, job deserve the same pay. This is about economic security uh, for, uh, for families. Paid family and medical leave, paid sick days. Today, most people um, don't have that one, one paid sick day that they can take. Um, uh, it, it, it also, uh, in paid family and medical leave, what this pandemic exposed, and I introduced that bill in 2013. I introduced paid sick days in 2007. I introduced uh, uh, the Paycheck Fairness Bill, Equal Pay in 1997. So I think I have a history of uh, really focusing in the time that I've spent in the Congress on working families, on middle class of families. And let me just say this to you in terms of term limits. I go to the poll, you, you go to the polls every year, uh, every two years, and the people can say yay or nay. Um, and if they uh, say nay and they want somebody else, they will do it. Uh, I have been humbled uh, that the people of the third district uh, have really elected me uh, time and again. Uh, I, I, I believe they believe uh, that it is because uh, I address the needs that uh, ad address the concerns and the challenges that they face and that their families face. Mm. Uh, speaking of New Haven, which is close to your heart, there's an interesting mayoral race uh, shaping up uh, with the incumbent Justin Elliger uh, facing a challenge for the Democratic nomination from Karen Dubois Walton, who's been a longtime executive director of the New Haven Housing Authority. I know it's still pretty early, but do you have an endorsement in this race, Congresswoman? Oh, I, it's, it's, it's very early. The conventions are in July, so we'll, we'll see where things go. Well, I want to thank you for your time today here on Where thank We Live. You. Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, again, here on the show. And we hope to have you back soon. 
Thank you very, very much. Enjoyed our time together, Lucy. Take care. Be safe. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from Paul Bast, editor of the New Haven Independent. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from longtime Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro of the 3rd District. Joining us now on Zoom is New Haven Independent Editor Paul Bass. Welcome back, Paul. Hi, Lucy. It's so nice to hear you. Nice to talk with you. So what struck you about uh, our interview with Congresswoman DeLauro? I thought that the term limits answer was interesting. The same thing struck me, Lucy, combining (laughs) that answer with the earmarks discussion. So interesting to watch Rosa DeLauro in this session because I think what the issue she's facing symbolized a larger question facing America's political system and government, which is what does it mean to legislate? We have a whole new trend of younger Congress people like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who actually don't want to serve on committees. They don't want to remember Margie Taylor Greene, the Republican, got pulled from committee. She said, great, you know, now she can go continue being on Fox News and not have to worry about the stupid, boring details of (laughs) compromising to get stuff through that doesn't get headlines. And Matt Gaetz said the first people he's hiring are the comms team. And that was also Crawford. But it's not just Republican versus Democrat. It's what does it mean to be a legislator? It's hard work that takes a long time and isn't glamorous and involves lots of compromise to accomplish anything in government, especially the federal level. And as you know, Lucy, we've watched how less federal government has been able to make decisions through Congress. We've had more power in the executive presidents making decisions because Congress has a hard time passing basic stuff that people do agree on. Look at this China bill they wanted to have that began bipartisan, but for other reasons gets derailed. So Rosa DeLauro is trying to do very old fashioned legislating, still believing you can legislate that way in two ways. You know, and some people say, and it's a fair debate that's happened over the last couple of decades that began with earmarks. Newt Gingrich said, we got to blow up earmarks because all these projects get approved to get a big bill passed that we like. It has to have little parts that pay off Congress people who have influential votes and projects that aren't worth it, either enrich the congressmen themselves or give stuff to the district they don't need. So that's what blew up the earmarks. And it was a legitimate criticism behind it. Over time, what replaced it wasn't necessarily better. Newt Gingrich got more pork than anybody in Congress when he was the uh, House, when he was the Speaker of the House. And what Rosa tried to do this term is so interesting when she brought back earmarks. She said, okay, let's see what people didn't like about it, but see if there's a way where we can pass laws again. So as, as you've been following, and I think she mentioned, they had a new way of doing earmarks, mm-hmm. which was it has to be way out in the open. It can't be a rat, as they call it, put in the bill at the last minute. Every member says, here's the projects we want. So if you look at ROSAs, they include things like the crisis response team to replace the police for mental health calls or building rec facilities with St. Martin de Porras, right? And that's for the infrastructure bill. And then you have to have each member attest that they're not personally going to benefit financially from any proposal because that was a problem. And so can we 
because it's messy to pass legislation and it's not realistic with 435 Congress people, 100 senators, that everyone's going to be on board all the time unless you find some way to convince them. There are a lot of elements to a bill. And there's also a larger challenge in how we even talk about law and lawmaking, because if you vote for any bill that has 20 components, sometimes you might like 19 and decide you'll stomach the 20th. And beginning, we saw this in Connecticut with a secretary of state race in the 90s with Susan Bicewitz, where she got rid of one of her opponents by claiming she was for child predators because there was a provision in a bill that had many components that you could twist out and make into a TV ad. So, Lucy, I see all that coming into play in these debates about what does it mean to be a lawmaker? So Rosa DeLauro comes from the school that you work your way up. You start in the morning calling the people who try to get, get a provision through a committee hearing. What's it going to take to get that 15th vote? And, you know, she followed this child tax credit bill for decades to get it passed. And then the end, you try to pass something that isn't perfect, but in the case of the child tax bill, eliminates poverty for millions of families. But, you know, there was legitimate criticism over the years that there was a calcified way of doing government that was benefiting members more than benefiting the public. I think we've seen that what was replacing it, which was kind of a simplistic way of cheap political posturing that both parties engaged in, was worse. It meant that we couldn't fix bridges. It means that we can't keep safe water flowing into people's homes in Newark or Flint. But will Rosa succeed in convincing people that it's good to be in government a long time? That doesn't make you the problem. It means you get better at it and you have more influence. Can she convince people that negotiating complicated bills with many Congress people representing different kinds of constituencies involves looking at how each of those constituencies will benefit can we have those discussions in America anymore? I think the fate of what happens to Rosa DeLauro in this term is a reflection of where we're going to go that way in the country. And it is a, a big deal. It's a good context. It, it is a big deal that she is now chair of the House Appropriations Committee. When we look at this, uh, this budget that President Biden has put forth, how it goes to both the House and Senate budget committees, but then it then goes to her committee. And I'm just curious right. if you can talk about the, the, the influence that she has in this process. Right. So she's basically, if you spend all those years in Congress and then you chair a committee, you get to be in the negotiations in the room at the end about whether a bill goes forward and what's in that bill. And as I said, with the earmark discussion, she's trying to revive a way of doing business, but do it in an honest, open way as an alternative to the sort of cheap grandstanding way of doing politics that replaced it over the last 20 years and kind of stuck Congress in a ditch. So on the one hand, yes, there's a potential for Rosa DeLauro to be in a, a, a very important um, decision maker behind the scenes, whether it's capital security, whether it's child tax credit, which she has already succeeded in, and that was a great success, and moving forward on infrastructure. And we'll see what happens there as a test case for what can happen with American legislating and democracy. Uh, getting back to the Elm City, a really interesting race shaping up. I tried yeah. to get something out of Congresswoman. Of course, she wasn't going to endorse this early, but why not ask? Well, tell us a little bit about uh, the challenge uh, to Justin Elker. It's an interesting race in New Haven because it's proving that adage that so much of politics is timing. Before, When you decide to run for office, you don't know what's going to happen in the world or in a city in the next few months. So this Justin Elker has been mayor for one term. And it's been over a hundred years since any mayor in New Haven has lost a reelection campaign after only one term. And that was a fellow Samuel Kempner who actually hadn't won his first term. He succeeded when someone died. 
So it's tough to be the one-term mayor, especially in New Haven, where it's two-year terms and people feel like it really should be four-year terms. You have time to do anything. On the other hand, he has a very strong opponent. Uh, Karen Bois Walton has sort of been like Rosa DeLauro in the sense that she's been around a long time and done the hard work of government. She's done it more in an executive capacity or an administrative capacity. She went to Yale, became a child psychologist, worked with the police department on starting our our program of cops working with social workers to help kids in crisis. She became the chief administrative officer of the city, overseeing line departments, mayoral chief of staff. She became the head of the housing authority a bunch of years, um, a bunch of years building new housing developments. She uh, is very active in sororities and in sort of this Graustein program of young leaders. So she's a real veteran person who's done politics and government without getting a lot of attention to herself. Justin Ellicker came to New Haven to go to grad school in uh, the late aughts, so about 20 years after Karen, and he got involved as an alder and quickly became the kind of person who got a lot of attention for championing some issues that needed to be championed or ignored. And then he ran for mayor twice and won on his second term in 2019 by sort of promising the new politics, running on a clean democracy fund, which is our public financing system, giving out his phone number, he has a very, like he says, I'm a new kind of politician, non-ideological, which has its pros and cons. So in his first year in office, he got hit with the worst um, public health crisis in over a century. And he he had a really good health director and kind of got in front of it. So people in the Haven feel like he's done a very good job on that. And he also has tackled some tough budget issues. He's about to have a big announcement that Yale University is going to give a lot more money that used to voluntarily for the city. So that puts him in a strong oh, position wow. to run again. He also does not have the kind of deep relationships that a Karen Bois Walton has had developed from governing and being a part of the community. So when it comes to issues over policing, which were very, that's why I'm talking about timing. If this race had been last year, he would have lost Karen Bois Walton won because she has those deep relationships in the city she overseen the police and she's very active with people who care about civil rights and has a real vision of what policing is, whereas Justin really doesn't, you know, he's learning on the job and he named the police chief who sort of, you know, took us back to a way of doing policing from before community policing, the thin blue line, we, he, you know, a very strong proponent of thin blue line policing of soldier military policing us against them. So if this had been last year, that would have been a disaster, but the world changes right yeah. now. Um, Black Lives Matter does not have the influence it had a year ago. And even though we have an uptick in violence and that's going to hurt Justin Ellicker, what people want to do about it is not so clear. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see well, over the next few months a very hard fought campaign with two very strong candidates. As I always say in New Haven, yeah. it's not good guys <laughs> against bad guys when they run for mayor. We, well, have we can't wait. People. We can't wait to see what happens. We'll definitely yeah. have you back. Uh, editor of the New Haven Independent, Paul Bass. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lucy. Sorry if I rambled on too much there. <laughs> uh, no, no problem. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. We'll be back tomorrow.